Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. This is Tim. Before we get to the retro-futuristic sound of the creator, I wanted to remind our Los Angeles-based listeners, or anyone that might be headed to town for the Golden Reels or CAS Awards, that Tonebenders is teaming up with Game Audio LA for our second sound design meetup in Los Angeles. It will be on Thursday, February 29th at 7 p.m. at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. We have the covered patio set aside for us to hang out with friends both old and new, talk shop, and share some laughs. All sound people are welcome and encouraged to come out, whether you work in games, film, series, field recording, or anything else. I'm going to be there, and I would love to meet as many of you as possible, so please come by and say hi. Full details can be found at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Okay, let's get to talking about the creator with Ethan and Eric. Enjoy this episode, everybody. Hello and welcome to Tonebender Sound Design Podcast, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today as we delve into a near future where artificial intelligence and the robot simulants powered by it have become an intensely divisive issue amongst humans. Half the world fears them and half the world embraces them in the recent film The Creator by director Gareth Edwards. With us today, we have supervising sound editors and sound designers from The Creator. First up, we have Ethan Vanderrein. Ethan, it's great to talk to you again. How are you today? I'm doing really well, yeah. Yeah, holding up in the rain. It's all good. <laughs> we also have Eric Adal with us today. Welcome back, Eric. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. You've both been on Tonebenders three times previously, with your appearance talking about A Quiet Place being a particularly popular episode for us. And that film kind of has a bit in common with the creator as they're both kind of gritty sci-fi that are completely new stories. They're not based on any previous IP. Uh, When you've worked on Godzilla films, for instance, the whole history and lore is in place that your work has to kind of feel a part of. But for the creator, everything is kind of being created from scratch. Do you want to kind of talk about how you uh, first talked with the director, Gareth Edwards, and how you kind of landed on the kind of sounds you went with? Eric, go. Go for it. All right. Gareth and us have a, a relationship that goes back um, over 12 years now. Um, you know, we got started on Godzilla way before the script was finished, which is kind of Gareth's style. He likes to engage the, the sound artists um, very early before any footage has been shot, uh, before the script is finished. And, uh, and, I, and I love that because I think when you can cross-pollinate departments and uh, when sound can be sort of part of the DNA of the storytelling on, on a script level, uh, similar to A Quiet Place, uh, to me, that uh, yields the most cinematic experience, ultimately. So it was about six years ago when uh, Gareth, uh, we had dinner at the Smokehouse, which is right down the street from uh, our sound design rooms uh, at, at Warner Brothers. And uh, he was like, I want to try a different way of filmmaking. So he'd, he'd just, you know, been done Godzilla, which, you know, $250 million movie or whatever the budget wound up being. And, uh, and to Gareth, that was like steering an aircraft carrier. It's like everything you've got giant crews, hundreds of people, 
every setup takes forever. And uh, Jared's previous film, Monsters, um, he did with just like a crew of five people, guerrilla style, down in you know South America. And uh, to him, that was a thrilling creative experience because he could improvise and be super limber and come up with ideas on the spot, shoot it. And he thought, well, what if you take the best of both, both worlds? What if you do a sci-fi movie, guerrilla style? And so we talked a lot about that. And uh, a couple of years later, he was showing concept art over at dinner where he had these uh, Cambodian jungles with the Angkor Wat temple. But then in the corner, you'd see a monk, but it wasn't a human monk. It was a robot monk. And I thought, whoa, this is really interesting. What is this about? And uh, he kind of gave sort of the brief synopsis of the story. And then a few years later, started really getting the ball rolling on making the creator. And uh, the, the first thing he did when he had a draft of the script he was happy with was did this um, location scout. And uh, it was a pretty extensive location scout uh, across Asia from, uh, I think it was eight different countries. Uh, he was in Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Laos, um, went up to the Himalayas and Nepal and shot this 10-minute kind of proof-of-concept piece um, that uh, then we did the sound for. And uh, ILM also chipped in and, and uh, did the visual effects for it. And it was so successful that that got the green light and uh, just went out and shot. And what he did was he basically, hit, the way he describes it is, you know, 90% of the budget is in this giant production. And you've got a huge crew there and green screens and big setups and you know, then you got 10% left for visual effects and sound and post. He wanted to kind of invert that. And okay, what if we do it guerrilla style, do 10% of the budget on real locations, don't build any sets at all, have as tight a team as possible. So it could be super limber. And, and shoot and shoot and shoot and improvise and do 35-minute takes with his actors and and then really put a lot of resources into post-production. And it was a totally kind of novel, new way of doing things um, on the production side end of things. Uh, Ian Voigt, the production mixer, had to come up with whole new t techniques. It's, it's basically, the movie looks gorgeous and epic, but it's shot on a prosumer camera. So the, the simple workflows that we're all used to with syncing time code and all of that had to kind of be reinvented uh, between Ian Voigt and uh, Greg Frazier and Oren Soffer, the, the directors of photography. Couldn't be tethered to a boom pole because camera's moving all over the place. He's doing 360 shots. So, you know, they figured out whole new wireless boom situations to be able to do all this. And they're shooting in storms and it was a wild production experience. But what we got back from Ian and the production was incredible. Kind of in line with the style Gareth wanted to go for. He wanted a gritty, grounded, real 
kind of experience. And uh, that was why I didn't want the green screens. He wanted an actual floating village in Thailand with hundreds of extras and using those voices and languages from location to give it that verisimilitude, that reality that um, you can try to fake it, but there's nothing like the real deal. Similarly for sound, you know, we, uh, I'm obsessed with like going on to locations. Every time I travel, I've got my rig with me and uh, I collected hours and hours and hours of recordings across Vietnam and Laos, Cambodia, the jungles, uh, and uh, Thailand. And all of that is in the movie and all of that we kind of prepped. And uh, as soon as we got the first sequence from the film uh, that uh, Gareth and the picture department sent us, uh, we could see, okay, he pulled this off. <laughs> the first sequence he sent was the um, entire floating village uh, invasion sequence, and which we... With the giant tank? With the giant tank. We, we nicknamed that kind of the tank battle. Of course, well, we, we got the sequence, which is... It was about 15 minutes long. There were no visual effects. You know, it's all just these gorgeous uh, plates from location. But we could imagine what it eventually was going to look like. But uh, we basically were designing the sound blind, which in a way is kind of freeing. You're not limited by what you're seeing. You can use your imagination sonically and start to build something. That sequence also happened. There was no music tempted, which is rare. Normally, that's the big crutch, you know, for filmmakers, and which turned out to be kind of a magical experience for me and Ethan when we took our first path. It felt so real and so visceral, and you could hear the sounds of nature, the sounds of the, the people, like all these languages. When the battle happens, there's sort of a visceral reality to it, a real gritty realism that is, I find to be rare in, in this genre. It kind of mix of genres. It's like, in a way, it's like a mix of Terrence Malick and James Cameron. He never as if those filmmakers had a baby. <laughs> and that was so, so unique. And, and we're like, oh gosh, we really have to pitch to Gareth that um, maybe we don't, we should not play music in this sequence. We should keep it this raw and visceral. And when we mentioned it, he's like, oh yeah, of course, that was my intention the entire time. <laughs> so it's, it's a pleasure working with Gareth because he, he, he'll never do the easy thing. He'll never do the thing that's um, safe, that's been done before. That you know because it's been done before and that works you know it's gonna work he he's like no always do the opposite do the risky thing do the thing that is different like if you have the choice always do the risky thing because that's what's unique and that's what's special and for me that's why i love movies i want to be taken on a journey that's new and fresh and exciting and thrilling and that's Ethan and my kind of process too. Like if uh, I think we mentioned this on our quiet place interview we did with you years ago, it's like, that's our thermometer. We have to give ourselves goosebumps. We have to inspire ourselves with our sound before, uh, inspire, uh, either a director or an audience. 
So that's that's kind of the whole starting point of uh, of where we began. Ethan, how do you guys, as uh, like you, you each are credited as supervising sound editor and sound designers, how do you divide up the work between the two of you so that uh, mm-hmm. it gets done, I guess? Well, a lot of the sort of more conceptual work, we really like to work together on because like Eric was saying, you know, we're our own sort of worst critics in some way. So we feel like if we can make ourselves happy, that's really what's most important. Like we trust our own instincts and we trust each other's instincts. And there's something about the synchronicity that happens, the fusion that happens from working together where, like Eric was saying, you know, for us, it's about, we want to surprise ourselves. And there's something about working through stuff on a conceptual level, especially on like the first pass on things, we're experimenting and exploring. And there's something really nice about about doing that as a as a team together. So usually on a lot of the more sort of conceptual design stuff, first pass, we're sort of working on sections together. Depending on what else we have going on, we'll split up at times and go different places and be managing, supervising different parts at different times. But then we'll come back together and work together, you know, sometimes at the mix, sometimes in the, in the studio. It's a flexible situation where we're kind of always adapting to the needs of what we've got going on. It's actually kind of surprising to me we've been doing this for like 17 years we've been partnered up and and done a lot of movies together and we've really never had a conversation about okay you do this and I'll do this it's kind of I was thinking about this the other day because I feel like that's very unusual to have things sort of as undefined and unstructured as they are in our partnership. There's just a lot that's unspoken and that I feel like we're able to adapt whatever the situation is, whatever the needs are, and just make it happen. And I feel like that's actually very unusual something that's unusual about our our partnership and the whole work situation and and the structure that we have. In a lot of ways, our brains work in a similar way because on some core level, we believe our approach is very similar. It's about finding the the kernel of the, the sort of creative nut in any project that sort of unlocks it. I feel like that approach maybe isn't the way that that a lot of people work. And because we do work that way, it, it works for us to work together in this sort of flexible, ever-evolving way that doesn't require a lot of like structure in place to make it work. And it's um, I, f- I feel like that's pretty rare. It's funny, we've had conversations about this where there is like this sort of effortless with how we work creatively. And I, I find there's these times where Ethan will just start like humming a tune, will show up in the morning, he'll start humming a tune. And I'll have had that tune in my head that morning. And it's like almost like reading minds. 
kind of bizarre, but I think there's there is this um to me it's a it's a very special like true partnership um creatively that uh that maybe transcends the physical realm to get a little spacey right now. It's hard not to get a little abstract. The partnership works on a lot of sort of abstract levels and emotional levels in a way. You know, one of the things that I've always loved about working with Eric is, and I've felt this from the very beginning when we started to work together, his ability to not be too precious and hold on to his ideas and his work, you know, too closely, the creative freedom to like try something and for us to be like, yeah, that's cool. But what about like flipping it and doing it the opposite way? And, and, and a lot of people would have the reaction of like, no, 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 but this is what I want. Or I spent all this time doing this. Right. I've spent all this time. And what like what a waste of time. Freeing, just like hitting it, select all delete. Let's try something else. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of inspiring. And there's a, you know, another sort of thing that we share in common is really the belief, a core belief that when it comes to sound design, less is often more. Like, how do we strip away sound? to get down to the essence, the, the like, and the single, like most important sound in any given moment, really. And for any frame and film, really our basic unit, we were, we're, we're working in frames at the most basic level, getting the, having the precision to like, think about sounds moment to moment, frame to frame at this moment, what is the sound? that we want to hear. I think that's a really roundabout way of sort of <laughs> addressing your question. But, um... <laughs> and, and that's how it works. Um, so speaking of less is more, there's everybody that works in sound wants to work in sci-fi. Well, maybe not everybody, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a very popular thing because sound really gets to play in it. Robots are something that I've worked on a bunch and I'm always excited to get into them because they're fun to design the sounds for. But the problem is that when a robot is constantly moving, all those little servos, as much fun as they are to design and come up with, they can actually become quite annoying for people watching the movie if every moment is a... The way you landed on the stuff in the creator for the robots is really great because it's so subtle that it can just disappear and it's almost not noticeable when it's not there. And then when it comes back, it's because it's a key moment to remind us, you know, about some key element of the story. Um, The replicants kind of don't have ears, but have a hole going through their head, especially the child. When the child is getting more intense uh, to use one of her, her powers, there's like sounds start giving you the idea of what's going on in her head in a really interesting way. Um, do you want to kind of talk about how you came up with the, your philosophy behind, behind the servos for the robots in this film? Yeah, well, so there's no one type of robot in the movie, from the most rudimentary to the most advanced, Alfie being sort of the, uh, the most advanced AI robot in the film. So... And Gareth kind of described this too. Like he loves science fiction as as I do, and uh, talked a lot about retro futurism. 
that in the future, it's not all going to be like the newest Apple version of a robot. There's going to be a whole, you know, 20 years of ranges of there. will be the Sony Walkman version of a robot, for example. And maybe the most rudimentary robot on one end of the spectrum, one pole, uh, would be the um, U.S. Army bomb robot we called P-13, P-14. They're kind of like trash cans with legs. Big bomb trash cans, heavy things with legs. They're not AI, but they, you know, they can communicate by, like in a rudimentary computer kind of way, in a more speak and spell kind of way. So that was the approach to the vocal processing for them. And their servos are more traditional, heavy, pneumatic kind of servos that we feature. And because they are heavy, we play their weight a lot more. And there's a sequence where they're running across this big wooden bridge. And we treat that kind of like a Jaws moment where you hear them in the distance. And then as they get closer. And really play up the heaviness and the weight of them and their servos. So that's the most rudimentary end. And then you've got a whole range in between where, you know, there's uh, AI, but don't look human. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll have like in, praying mantis insectoid heads and we'll go somewhere in between with those, have more advanced kind of thermo technology that's less rudimentary, uh, maybe more subtle, but still noticeable with their movements and, and uh, from the actual sound design of their, of their servos to sort of the more uh, what we call sort of robotic flop, mechanical foley for the uh, intricate movements of their mandibles and then other features. And then on the other full up their end of the spectrum is Alfie, who's the most advanced AI that's ever been made. And she is the most subtle of all. And we play almost very, very delicate in the quietest scenes. You can hear her servo moments, but we really underplay them and have to give credit to our mixers. Um, Dean Zupanzik, the sound effects of Thomas Anich, the dialogue and music. And uh, they did an incredibly elegant job with how subtle to get. So for her robotic signature, it really was what you mentioned, those kind of flywheels in her ears, which um, Gareth kind of described those as if um, a, a rabbit is called attention to a sound or an idea or something, the ears kind of go up and they might move around and uh, like radar issues. And so as she's thinking and processing, you see those ears kind of spinning and articulating and moving. And that was something we had to track um, through the entire process um, with what ILM did with all of that. Is you know, one day suddenly, boom, we have like 50 new shots of like intricate ear movements that we're tracking. And as what she uses her power, those wheels really start to spin and accelerate. She has this power to connect with other technology, whether it's other robots or being able to turn machines on and off. And that kind of power, we did not want it to be sort of an electronic, synthetic kind of power. There's, there's this component to Alfie where she's almost like a messiah kind of character. 
And so we wanted uh, something that evokes uh, a spiritual quality. And, and you, you see this um, at its apex in the scene where one of these big heavy arm robots confronts her on the bridge and it kneels down to her and she puts her hand on it and we rip out, you know, all the sounds of the battle just kind of disappear and we go into this internal space and you hear her power building. And, and instead of using an electronic or a synthetic sound for that, uh, we used uh, the sound of a didgeridoo instrument. It's the sound that I love, a sound for me that evokes, um, uh, has a spiritual quality, but blurs the line between synthetic and organic. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's the sort of sound that you can believe is uh, an, uh, an energy coming out of a robot. But even though it's completely organic sound, but I, I love that when we can blur the organic and the inorganic in interesting ways. Um, I find that thought provoking. So that's, yeah, that's a little summary of that spectrum, robotic spectrum. Uh, I think we're going to lose Ethan in a second. So I just want to ask Ethan one question before uh, we lose him. Ethan, the, the trick of this film is that at the beginning of the film, we see the simulants from one perspective. And as the film goes on, we start gaining sympathy for them. They're not the evil en- enemy that we think they were. Do you want to talk about kind of designing the voices of the robots uh, to get us through that kind of uh, evolution? Designing the voices, it was a very interesting process for us. It was probably the only case in the movie that I can think of where it felt like we were on a sort of different page from from Gareth. Gareth was super interested in taking them in a more synthesized, processed direction. And I think part of it tracked back to the fact that the visual effects weren't quite maybe coming together as he was imagining them to. He was worried that in um, people were going to forget that a lot of the simulants are simulants, you know, that they're actually robotic. So he just wanted to make sure that people would would not forget that and would always be aware of that. So he was thinking, you know, by treating the voices more, that would sort of help that concern of his. For us, we were like, no, really the less less treatment is better, you know, especially as the movie progresses and we start to <laughs> sympathize with them more. We wanted, you know, it was important to us that their their voices feel more human. And specifically with Alfie, because she, you know, really becomes the hero of the movie and in so many ways, the most human character in the movie, even though she's not human or the most sympathetic, I should say. We were sort of, we were were fighting a little bit against the idea of processing, but then we're thinking, well, Gareth is the director. This is his vision. We're going to we're going to like fully explore this. And so we did that and um 
Malta Beeler, who was our lead sound designer, worked out a lot of different sort of different um, processing chains for the voices with a whole range from like very lightly processed to more heavily processed. We presented them to Gareth and eventually over like months, really, um, and it sort of co-evolved with as the visual effects came together more and he got more comfortable with it. And also the picture editors were sort of in agreement that they're really, especially on Alfie, you know, there shouldn't be too much processing. So it was a real process of experimentation and with Gareth getting more comfortable with having less. And then also there is a little bit of an arc where you feel, maybe you feel the processing a little more um, towards the beginning of the film, as you sort of indicated. And then it slowly gets to be less, but it's also, you know, depends on the, you know, each character has different amounts of processing. And obviously the, the New Asia police were all completely processed. And actually that was a fun, that was a fun thing. Cause we're, Gareth was in one day, we were working with him trying to figure out what these robot police should sound like. And he's like, well, they should be like, kind of, you know, he said it and we're like, Oh, like, that's it. We just need to record you doing it. That was not a, that, by the way, that was a, a bad imitation of what he did, but he basically did the the sound that we're like, okay, we just need to record you doing it. And so we recorded them on the spot and put that right in the movie. And some of that actually went, you know, is in the movie now. It kind of stood the test of time. So there, that's like totally made up language and heavily processed. So that's, you know, that's kind of the other end of the spectrum from, from Alfie, which ended up being, you know, she ended up having zero processing. Yeah. Some of the AIs that look like robots, like the Sony Walkman kind of versions of the robots we would do treatments on and, uh, talking again about retro futurism. Uh, Gareth loves some of the sounds of like, uh, classic sci-fi from like the seventies that Walter Murch, for example, would do with THX 1138. And, uh, he's like, how do we do, how do we experiment with that sort of stuff? And so we, we use some of those old analog tools and kind of new digital ways, like using vocoders, for example, and getting a performance, whether it's, um, an invented language, like we created some new Asian languages, making hybrids, um, like Hindi, Thai, or Japanese and uh, Vietnamese. And, uh, and then the processing chain, we would you know, use MIDI to kind of like play the vocoder and get certain, the certain tones that we would want with that, um, using the kind of digital vocoders like Antares and Orange and Eric, I'm just going to stop you there. I think Ethan's trying to get out of here. Yeah, so. sorry. I do. I do need to run back to the stage, but um, it was it was great to speak with you a bit. And you guys should just keep talking. I'm sure um, you could go for you could go for at least another hour. I'm sure. So <laughs> thank you very much, Ethan. If you don't mind, Erica, I got just a couple more questions for you. Of course. Have a great All right, day. Thank Ethan. you too. Bye. See ya.
two things I wanted to talk to you about that really kind of blew me away. One was the sound of Nomad's scanning slash aiming system. Uh, and then also the the guns and the explosions, the way uh, they feel both, maybe analog isn't the right word, but like like explosions that we're used to in the real world. But then there is an extra element of almost like bass drops involved in them as well. Uh, the one thing I really loved about the uh, Nomad is a spaceship up in this, well, maybe not spaceship, a upper atmosphere ship that uh, can shoot down. And the way that was tackled in the Atmos mix uh, was really cool. Now, we, we fully used the Dolby Atmos format for Nomad because, like you said, it's um, up in the stratosphere. It's, um, you know, this, this advanced uh, trillion-dollar space station that can go all around the globe, uh, send down tracking beams, these blue beams across the terrain uh, uh, in search for hidden AI basins, the bomb. And uh, and those tracking beams, you know, we we're kind of chatting with uh, Gareth about, okay, how, how do you want us to sort of approach this? Um, you could just play them silent completely. Um, or you could do something subtle or everything in between. And we wound up doing everything in between, you know, like depending on how far away we are. One direction that Gareth gave us was it should sound, it should feel dangerous. Nomad is this omnipresent threat throughout the movie. So one thing he said was, well, you know, if if you're near the beam and you put your hand into it and you hold it there too long, something volatile, something that is like dangerous, corrosive. Um, so we started playing with sort of the, and, and it's funny and it's kind of ironic that the nomad beam sounds were the only sounds in the movie that were purely synthetic, like purely electronically derived, which I find to be sort of intellectually interesting because the whole concept is the West has banned AI yet they're using the most high tech advanced weaponry in service to destroy AI. So there's there's this irony with that that I really love. So I wanted them to be powerful, but have sort of that riz of like almost radioactivity. Okay, before we let you go, uh, do you want to just go over the weapons, the kind of explosions and guns, and the kind of range of different kinds of technologies involved? You know, similar to now, like in, in the present, like of all the weapons, you've got the most basic sort of weapons, like they're still... You know, a 357 like revolvers around, but then you also have Patriot missiles or, you know, <laughs> laser scope uh, sniper rifles with suppressed ammunition. You got a range. You're going to have tracer bullet style energy weapons. You're going to have a kind of a range. Some of them we'd start with like the low end thump of, say, you know, 50 caliber, but with suppressed am- ammunition. So you can get that so you get the power but then top it with strange things like we would swing things around on strings not even thinking about the physics and reality of it but just like what's satisfying as a as a science fiction fan and then for the explosions um figuring out ways to kind of make them interesting but also serving the emotional beat what's the purpose in this scene in this moment for it so sometimes i wanted them to be like uh beautiful in a weird way like the 
the Hante, not just percussive and dying. So um, and I'm a fan of low end. I'm a fan of bass props. <laughs> we did play with that a lot. And, you know, and sometimes that's just like kick drums that we would vary speed down from a higher frequency into a lower frequency. So we switch from the mains into the subwoofer purely. And then you can bring in the reality of it based on whatever that the power of that explosion shockwave that comes out of it or debris and dust and towards the end of the film where we start to see some of the true tragedy um, happening with some of these explosions, we be on a wide shot more like a, an exhale, like a final death breath, you know? So you can be, that's, that's one thing I love about sound is you can be really abstract with it. It's an abstract art and the purpose is, you know, you don't need to be literal. The approach should be, how are we telling a story, physical story, but also the emotional story. That's the power of sound. You can use something totally different to what's actually on screen. But when you combine them, if emotionally correct, then kind of the magic trick, yes. That's awesome. I think that's a great note to go out on. Uh, thank you very much. Congratulations on the Oscar nomination for this. It's interesting that both A Quiet Place and this one, you're one of the uh, lone people nominated for the film. So uh, hold the flag high and uh, represent it well. And uh, break a leg and have fun during the whole uh, process coming up. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. It's great chatting with you, Tim. Big thanks to Ethan and Eric. Unfortunately, Eric had a rather shady internet connection, so his audio feed was a little lacking. I think he was eloquent enough that it is better to put out the substandard audio than to just trash it, though. Hopefully you agree. Remember about the Tonebender Sound Design Meetup coming up soon in LA, February 29th at 7pm. We will be hanging out on the covered patio at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. Full details can be found at tonebenderspodcast.com. Also coming up that same weekend, Sunday, March 3rd, are the MPSC Golden Reels. Tickets can be procured at mpsc.org. I went last year, and I have to say, it was a really fantastic night. I had a blast, and I'm looking forward to going again this year. The next few episodes on the Tonebenders feed are going to be amazing. I can't wait for you to hear them, so please make sure you keep an ear out. My name is Tim Muirhead, and on behalf of Eric and Ethan from The Creator, thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. <laughs>